What the, what the hell? Let me show you about the, the 16th time I was pulled out of the immersion of the game. Once again, this game's unfinished, terrible, ugly state of missing features and broken features showed its ugly head. Check it out. Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, this is M. Welcome to Thorn in Your Side. I am getting close to Christmas and I know this because I'm ex ex exhausted as fuck. I am so exhausted I can't even say I'm ex exhausted you know as fuck. Who else is exhausted, Michael? The developers at CD Projekt Red. Thank you, kind stranger who I'm about to introduce. <laughs> this is Taya, everyone. He's an organiser with computer games with game workers unite australia the australian branch of game workers unite an organization that works to unionize and organize workers in the games industry um tell me more about this union movement taya that involves game workers all right games workers unite uh, grew out of you know a, a feeling a current in sort of game dev that uh Labor practices kind of suck um, in the industry. We've got essentially the worst aspects of tech with things like uh, crunch, uh, labor practices, um, also unethical sort of consumer um, treatment and that kind of thing. So things like uh, loot boxes, essentially legalized gambling for children um, that recently Belgium has decided to put a stop to. Um, so that's from the, the tech side of things with its monetization and, and labor practices there. But then also the crappy sides of creative industries with very project-centered sort of employment. So, uh, so you know, Michael, you come in, you want to work at my project, uh, you're going to be a writer, so you're going to be working for this, uh, this project, and then when it wraps up, cool, son, your contract's done, get the fuck out. When you get work, you're working, say, 60-hour weeks as per standard, maybe only getting paid for 40, you know, getting paid overtime if you're lucky. Then when the project wraps, you're, you're out on your bum. That's basically the sort of feeling that Games Workers Unite grew out of. We, a bunch of developers decided that enough was enough. The industry needs something that is on the side of workers, not on the side of industry owners, um, studio heads, basically the people at the top which are, which are getting the most they basically banded together and formed on very short notice at an activist group called Games Workers Unite. How um, long ago was that? 20, 2018, I think. But before that, things were sort of bubbling away. Around this time, I'm, I'm a sort of muckraking games journal, um, just sort of, you know, keyboard warrior, writing about things that are happening in the local scene, trying to cover local games, local projects, um, films as well. I'm more of a pop culture journal, I guess. Um, but yeah, I see this happening. I get involved with a uh, comrade by the name of Tim Colwell, who was uh, being a vocal sort of lead for, for the group here in Australia. I got in contact and I'm like, is there a Sydney branch? And he's like, you're it. And I'm like, fuck. Uh, so um, yeah, I, uh, I organized a sort of snap meeting in uh, I think around 2018, around October, November, basically saw who was around, who would be interested in sort of getting involved and formed the Sydney branch. And we've been around... Ever since, so we now 
like Games Workers Australia is its own sort of separate branch. We organize largely autonomously because the uh, Australian sort of scene is you know, organizing industrial relations scene is fairly idiosyncratic. And so occasionally we used to get like American organizers who were like, you got to do this. And we're like, it doesn't really work here, buddy. Buzz off. Um, but yeah, we, we work with our sort of um, American comrades, uh, Canadian comrades, especially We've recently gone through a recent restructure where um, we basically uh, organize the org along two branches. So there's the North American sort of branch uh, who call themselves the organizing branch because they organize workplace to workplace. And then there's the federating branch, which is us, Italy, Sweden, Germany, I think maybe Spain as well. Anyway, they're the ones who work with already established unions um, to basically uh, funnel workers towards those organizations and also, to a certain extent, amalgamate with them. So, so this would be an international union? We try to organize internationally because a lot of these studios, and I mean, the philosophy is that capital organizes internationally, so so should workers. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, we we are indeed an international organization and we try to coordinate as much as possible with our comrades and work together um, and provide whatever support we can. Um, a lot of the time at this point, um, since we're still fairly new on the scene, um, you know, we're, we're mainly just providing sort of information and support in that kind of way. Um, that being said, we have had a couple of um, successful campaigns. So last year, um, we helped uh, incidentally kind of scare um, the organizers of PAX into finally paying their enforcers and volunteers. PAX, that would be the yearly event that happens down in Melbourne? Yep. So that is a very big convention. The like arcade, it. I don't know what the X stands for, but... Arcade X, uh, ooh. Uh, oh, Penny Arcade Expo. That's ah. that's what the acronym's for. Yeah. We've got that. We, the American sort of uh, volunteers and workers were betting, were getting paid, but the Australian ones weren't, and we thought that was a bit of an oversight. Oh. We were fairly early in the stages of a campaign there, mainly just seeing what the ground slow was like. Uh, the management caught wind of it and basically decided on very short notice to start paying their volunteers and... So we don't know if it was exactly us that caused it. We like to believe it was. And without us, uh, basically a bunch of packs and forces would not be getting paid for the many hours that they put in both training and actually running the event. And these days, I would say a, a very prominent fixture on the Geek calendar. Oh, packs. yeah. Yeah. So we're not just game developers, game workers. We also cover games journalists. We're also interested in sort of reaching out to sort of um, content creators and esports. So if there's anyone in your audience who's working in those sorts of areas and would be interested in coming and talking to us about your conditions, and even if you're doing fine, you want to help out maybe your colleagues and help out, you know, improve your scene. As they say, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if you help other workers in, in your industry, it helps you as well. Um, definitely reach out. You've mentioned that you're the Sydney organiser. A Sydney organiser. We oh, have there's we, a flotilla of organisers. Yes, absolutely. We <laughs> have a veritable uh, army of organisers everywhere you look. Okay. Um, but yeah, no. So we have a, a couple of other organisers as well. Um, so we have uh, Mitch McCausland uh, here in Sydney, who's uh, a great organiser. They, they are also our delegate to the sort of international sort of chapter. So, you know, they get together once a month and sort of coordinate with our colleagues um, about any sort of stuff we can sort of provide solidarity to or anything that we need from them. We've also got 
couple of other sort of interim names as well, uh, Claire Hosking, Jody Tomey. Now, but understand that if there's anyone I've missed, I, ver- I appreciate your solidarity very much and I love you very much, but yeah, I just couldn't remember the name right now. Uh, so we have a couple of other organizers in Sydney and volunteers and, and delegates and stuff who work with us. Yeah, they're all putting in that time. Like we're a volunteer organization. We don't have any money or anything to dedicate to that. But um, yeah, at some point when we are a little more formalized, you know, we're looking to sort of ask for membership fees or dues um, and hopefully be able to provide some more resources to things like strike funds or, or workshops for workers and yeah, see what we can we can do to help out. Um, yeah. It, it does sound like there is an advantage there with um, with this union starting up as being part of a greater international effort. Mm. Um, there's been a couple of episodes uh, on this uh, podcast so far where we've uh, interviewed union organisations uh, that may or may not be seeking later affiliation to the ACTU. Mm. That could be seen as a symbolic... Uh, idea of status for the organization but as i've learned in previous episodes that might necessarily be something that's of value to the to to the union organization so we are looking at sort of uh amalgamating possibly as a part of apisma or professionals australia specifically because technically they have an award or cover an award which would cover all game workers quite comfortably so that is the professionals award for any game developers listening uh in case you want to look it up and see whether your conditions match up. Uh, yeah, so they're very keen on, on um, working with us because we've been yeah fairly, fairly consistent and, and effective in the sort of work that we do. Um, we also do a bit of work with the MEAA, so that's the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Um, they cover smaller sections, so journalists, content creators and that kind of thing. But um, PA specifically is very interested in sort of having us as a, an affiliate organization, um, which will be cool because uh, being able to more easily access like, you know, resources for like the, um, the Australian Industrial Tribunal System and stuff like that for our members, I think would be incredibly valuable. But we're also very keen on maintaining our own independence and things like that in, in specific areas. So the ACTU, we might occasionally disagree with some of their decisions from a strategic point and so um, we may want to speak to that and say you know this is something that we disagree with on these points um, also games workers unite has its own um, I guess political sort of approach to things um, which has occasionally caused us some loggerheads with um, some individuals who uh, might be more center to things rather than rather than to the left. These are this is pretty much the hazards that um, I imagine you would encounter with going down the trail of affiliation and yeah, yeah. seeing how you match up with the, the more central institutions. Yeah, so I mean the just to just to be clear for for any developers uh, that are listening, you do not have to agree with the Games Workers Unite sort of political program. You can still be a member. So we have, uh, within our points of unity and things like that, look, you know, you don't have to be a leftist. You don't have to believe in the social justice um, points and things like that. If you just want to look at it from an industrial perspective, you can still join. The only stipulation is that you cannot be against them. So if you're a Nazi, fuck off. Does that also extend to being a Gamergate acolyte as well? No, no. If you're you're a Gamergater, 
yeah, nah, man, you're not gonna, you're not gonna find a happy home in GW. You, if you have any issue with that, you can mail it to fuck off. Yeah, uh, but that being said, even then, if you disagree with the sort of like the political project of GWU, that's okay. In Australia, you can still join Professionals Australia straight up. They are uh, much more um, run-of-the-mill uh, standard in how they sort of approach things and are very professional in how they approach uh, just being able to support their members and that kind of thing. Even if you are a developer who does not necessarily agree with our particular political project, that's okay. You've still got coverage there and you should definitely join regardless of what you think of GWU. Yeah, it is interesting how you mentioned that um, you're looking to to partner up with APESMA because mm. um, it, it introduces a question there with the types of employment arrangements that, that your members or potential members would enter into. Mm. Um, so you've mentioned there, Taylor, a variety of, of positions within the gaming community. I would think immediately like a game coder or a game yeah, designer yeah. or someone pro, like that. Pro. What are some of the employment arrangements that a member or a non-member could potentially fall into? Would it be like a handshake agreement or would it be some sort of contract written up with the actual gaming organisation or something that came so fall just a, along a PESMA award? Uh, what sort of stuff happens? With games, you have a whole breadth of things, right? So you've got the Big Temple Studios. Um, there's a couple in Sydney, so there's... Um, SMG, uh, Blowfish Studios, there's Wargaming as well. So um, World of Tanks and stuff have their own sort of branch here in Sydney. They are very professional. They've got proper contracts. They know how to navigate the industrial relations system. Um, Sorry, Taya, just to cut in. So this isn't just like a digital gaming. This also extends to the old-fashioned board game. We have a lot of board game like board game designer members who have also joined up and we are happy to work with them because cool. that industry also like, gosh dang. That being said, like there's, there's is a bit more like, oh. okay. So with games. Well, um, I imagine we could spend an episode talking about the games workshop. I look, I, I don't actually know too much about like the, the sort of games workshop situation, but I, I'm kind of now intrigued. I should look into that. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't speak on it now, but maybe we maybe we should have a discussion about what the situation is like in, in board games. But yeah, so in digital game development, so this is, you know, covering everything from consoles, PCs, mobiles, tablets, what what have you. If it's if it requires power and it's a game, it's probably developed by by sort of game developers, game workers. The sort of big temple studios, the big ones, the big boys uh, in the playground, they've got their asses covered. They know how to navigate the industrial sort of relations state in Australia. Um, They also know how to exploit it. So for instance, with uh, the boot test that we've got that the government recently is looking to mess around with. Yeah, uh, minimize. Yeah, so they know just enough how to, like what to pay to then be able to essentially ask their employees to work crunch. So crunch is uh, stints where employees, instead of just working, you know, your standard eight hours a day, half hour, lunch hour break, they, they get you to stay back on a consistent basis. Generally, this is done close to the end of a project where they need to like fix bugs or or implement features. Just make sure or that the product- get pro- out games just before Christmas. Yeah, yeah. They know the exact amount that they need to put into their contracts, how much to pay an employee to then effectively be able to say that we don't need to pay you over time. Mm. So they get paid well enough. So that's good. But also like, you know, to a certain extent, it is still detrimental to the employee themselves, especially if like- it also has some other health consequences and things like that. So I've heard stories of 
people being crunched and one particular person just after like you know a month of just non-stop overtime had a stroke had to go to the hospital like the stress just built up that they they were hospitalized yeah i can think of one immediate example there with one of the recent editions of mortal combat they're, they're produced by midway am i right in saying that yeah i uh, I'm not sure where that studio is based. Uh, is that one? Is that an American one? Or uh, I think the article that I came across, um, it was an account of uh, of designers in America. Yeah. Now, what the designers are actually mentioning is that because they were needing to get the game designed by a certain deadline. Yeah, yeah. They needed to dedicate a fair whack of their life at one point to designing the game. Yeah. For all the listeners out there that, that are, are very uh, familiar with Mortal Kombat and particularly the ones right now who aren't so familiar with with it and particularly in the later versions, some of the scenes in the game can be quite graphic. Like at the end of the battle uh, where um, you can see some very, um, how do I put this diplomatically, innovative ways of, um, of finishing off your opponent um, involving bandsaws and, um, and, and the like. Yeah. Uh, so... I noticed uh, in this article that the, the game designers really had to do a lot of research in what so, dismemberment looks like. Yeah. And there was some PTSD repercussions, obviously, from such an extensive um, amount of research so and then application. with this, uh, it was the, I think, the animators and the artists. So they had to, as part of, like, the reference work so as a, you know as an artist you you look at sort of reference images for like what the fuck is this meant to look like well, they were going on youtube to actually yeah to yeah find. no and it, you know they they were doing this and like you know this is all part of a crunch as well right so you got stress from the job just like standard you're coming in you're staying like 10 12 hour days mm. and you know you're going home and you're exhausted and you wake up and go do the same thing again get in at eight and leave at eight some workers even cheat by putting a sleeping bag next to the yeah desk. yeah some of them sleep at the office and that is considered perfectly fine like this is this is an artifact from like tech where you got your program that needs to get out at a specific time because the client needs it mm. your salespeople who weren't consulting with programmers or, or your developers and designers and stuff promise them these features and you got to implement them make sure that they work and that sometimes can get you know harrowing when it's something that you know has never been done before so it's like you gotta you gotta develop these this code that like makes a feature that works that does something that you may have never even learned was possible but this salesperson sold them this pie in the sky and so now you gotta bake it so with this like you know you got that uh, the stress from the job working those crazy long hours and then with that piled on you are now, you know, watching reference videos or looking at like, you know, fucking pictures on 4chan of people, <laughs> various states of like dismemberment or like surgery. And that is just, you know, that just builds up like that. There is no way that I work like full time as a legal transcriptionist. Right. And so I've developed the sort of techniques and stuff for like compartmentalizing the fucking harrowing shit I hear. Mm. And you can't do that you can't dedicate the energy to just like put that away in your psyche or just get it out of your head if like well i imagine with the with your own lifestyle there Taya, you give yourself a chance just to chill out and decompress pretty yeah? much yeah and you don't get that when you're working you know 10 hour 12 hour days for for four weeks until the project is released mm. and that's yeah that's not 
obviously like there needs to be more sort of studies and, and research stuff into mental health but like informally i can tell you like that is that is how in my office we get burnout and if you're doing something like this in a game like all this suffering for a game like that is insane for me personally what attracted my interest in this particular issue was that issue of crunch because you see the big triple a listed games is that the vernacular yeah, yeah. am i using that right yeah so triple a comes from um the financial sector so those are your big temple games the ones that are too big to fail yeah well too big to fail yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what i've noticed in the last few years is that there's been coverage about the build-up to the release of the game mm. but also a handy little side amount of journalistic coverage and i would really give a shout out to the likes of kotaku kotaku don't give it that accent it is not a proper proper japanese word okay. uh, uh, but yeah kotaku polygon also does good work yeah. uh, jason schreier so he is um quite a famous uh, individual within the industry he's actually now writing for bloomberg of all places so on the one hand oh. on the one hand i'm like jason you do great work but on the other like you've made a deal with the devil um where wait. one goes for their their career aspirations but those particular journo groups they have put a great effort into covering the the exploitative side of game development as well and that's yeah. how i've come across terms like crunch yeah so just on that, Teo, we've mentioned particular union organisations that could come to bat for members that experience these labour situations, but are there any regulations or legal recourse that could enforce certain conditions to minimise the experience of crunch? Have you come across anything like that? Uh, this is where we get into, like... So I'm just going to expand a bit more on the previous question that you sort of asked about, like, what are the conditions like in the industry? Mm. So I was talking before about the big boys, the temple studios. There's also a lot of smaller studios or mid-level studios, as they're called. A lot of the time they can have like a handshake agreement where you're just working without a contract and, and cash in hand, cash in hand. And, you know, we've or sham contracting is another one. So okay. they have you on a contract. You're, you're coming in, you got your regular hours. You are essentially treated like an employee, not a contractor. Mm. But yeah, they've got you on a contract and you're a contractor. And that's basically the project life cycle for you kind of thing. So these are these are sort of industry abuses. So they will because you're a contractor, like you're not measuring how many hours they work. You set your own hours, right? But you got to come in at nine and leave at nine. There's a lot of avenues for abuse. Like I want to say to sort of games workers who might be listening to this or, or anyone in any industry who's finding similar sort of circumstances for themselves, there is avenues for recourse um, in Australia and they're generally through the unions. We've also got, you know, the workplace ombudsman and things like that, but they generally don't have the resources to sort of chase after sort of individuals and things like that it's a bit more difficult i'd say from an industry perspective most workers should be looking to get in contact joining up signing up with their unions asap not mm. not after shit happens like if you sign up with us we'll help you out no matter what because we understand that there's a lot of barriers for people sort of organizing together and we're just interested in helping our people wherever they are, however they are. And then you can help out others when things have settled a bit more. But the biggest avenue for recourse is essentially joining up with a union and things like that. Internationally, it really depends on sort of the environment there. So a lot of studios outsource specific assets to like Southeast Asian countries, for instance. So we have associates in the philippines and in india generally in southeast asia just sort of 
you know, big studios outsource things like art assets and, you know, it's cheaper, easier to pay people in rupees, that kind of thing. That um, sounds like a very similar setup to how they produce cartoons. Yep, very much so. I actually was uh, giving some advice to uh, a colleague in India who was interested in getting some help from Games Workers Unite and the international body was like, you know, do we have anyone in the region who'd be interested in helping out? So fell to Australia felt to me, uh, reached out, spoke to them, um, were able to give some advice there. So it really depends on the sort of the environment and the, the local factors that are there. But the biggest impediment to most game workers is that sort of fear of repercussions because the industry isn't particularly organized yet. We are doing our best to sort of get everyone together, building up that trust, that solidarity. But it is always scary to open that conversation for people and get them to basically think about the conditions in this industry, the conditions in your workplace don't have to be that way. And everyone, like the, the schools and, and the big industry heads and stuff, they, they basically say that crunch is a matter of fact, exploitation is a matter of fact. When you become big enough to be a studio head, you're going to be doing that to others. And we find that unacceptable. And it's like, why? What's the point? You're essentially grinding through people, burning people out. Like I'm, I'm like you know, I'm getting close to my 30s, I'm considered an elder, like that sort of like turnover, like, you know, crunching through the lives of young people, 20 year olds, that's insane. Is that the expectation, though, perhaps in that industry where you literally grind through a labor base in their late teens to late 20s? Yeah. And then rinse, repeat? Yeah. yeah is, that, is that the attitude by yeah, employers? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so on the down low, I know of one particular Sydney studio who calls it putting meat through the grinder. Okay. So yeah, no, it is considered a matter of course. And whoever comes out the other end still intact, you know, congratulations. They can be your mid-level, senior-level designers or programmers or whatever. But they fully expect people to burn out working 60-hour weeks and they factor it into their business plan. And there's always more more meat for the grinder, so why stop? And there's that romantic aspect of this line of work because, I mean, hell, you, you play computer games, what would be just as good as, as yeah. designing a game? Yeah. But and we're doing our best right now to describe what the potential realities are with yeah. meeting the dream. Yeah, and, you know, that's essentially it, right? So just to uh, clarify, like, the studio heads and sort of the bosses of studios very much exploit the passion of people in this industry. Like, it is a creative industry. You have people who are coming in and they have big dreams. And they, I believe that, you know, they should be supported as, in as much as possible and not ground into the dust. And the thing is, the refrain that I get is like, you know, this industry isn't feasible without crunch. And it's like, okay. That might be the case, especially when like you have studios um, working on shoestring budgets and success is boom or bust, or as I like to joke, bust or bust. When you know, you're working in those conditions, like people are going to be putting in a lot to hopefully have a small chance of success. Like It's great when it sparks and you have something that's super hot and sells like hotcakes, like Untitled Goose Game down in Melbourne, House House. Which, from all impressions, they seem to be one of the more progressive designers. Yeah, so they are a pretty nice place to work kind of thing. They are still like a, a proper company in the studio, though. Um, one thing I did notice when starting the game is that they do a welcome to country. Yeah, yeah. That was um, nice. So there's a there's a bunch of... I've um, never seen that before in a game as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, in Australia we have that sort of like... 
you know, we, we push for that kind of stuff. Like the industry is quite socially progressive. It's just its practices, which are back in the turn of the century, like, you know, Victorian factory owners. Um, what you've said definitely replicates that, the yeah. idea of late teens to late 20s, see yeah. how much you can extract out of them, and then it's up to the, yeah. the labourer themselves to work out whether they want to be on the scrap heap or not. Yeah. That idea of um, the, the old 18th century labor mills and yeah. producing cloth and had those oh, no, tiny a child fingers. got caught in the oh, a child got caught in the machine well better not slow it down it'll hurt production very more um, kids at it yeah. yeah pretty much um but you know part of this is like you you've made it into the dream you're working in the industry why would you risk that and it's like if you don't you're not going to be in the industry there's there's it's it's not feasible for you to keep that dream alive um and you know, it's, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and, and look, if, if these sorts of practices, if working on a shoestring budget and things like that, okay. But when, when the ship comes in, when the game sells well, you should get something for that. It can't just be all going to the studio head. You're, they're not the ones that may or may not be putting their bodies on the line. Mm. Or if they are, like, they shouldn't be the only one who gets all of the benefits. So, you know, we, we're pushing for things like cooperatives and things like that right so if you're a, a, a you know a studio owner listening to this you'll or you're someone who's looking to start up their own business and sort of game dev look at cooperative models so that you can you and your your co-workers your colleagues your comrades you know if you're going to be working together like share that profit together share that risk together don't let it just fall to your young 19 20 like year olds kind of thing don't crush them crush their dream just so that you can support yours but yeah, those are those are some of the things that uh, you know we're we're trying to address and trying to build up trust in people that they can they can change things for the better. I want to ask one more question, Taya, before maybe we get to the um, the, the case study that's oh, really yeah. brought us together. You mentioned before that um, that you've worked with designers, laborers, digital laborers from other countries. So I'd really like to just explore that interconnectivity that you seem to have with people from other countries like yeah how do you do that do you zoom chat with them talk we, with them over the phone it's this is game dev we're all on discord uh so yeah discord is a sort of um online platform it's part forum part like digital hangout space kind of thing it's yeah. mainly it's mainly catered towards games and so you know a lot of us are gamers of course we we end up sort of just hanging out on discord together so one of my colleagues in melbourne Maze wallen specifically um, I'm also working on them for my own project with my own sort of cooperative studio. They are an excellent uh, sound person as well as a pretty cool organizer. Um, they have a lot of contacts in the industry uh, across Southeast Asia because they've worked with a lot of studios internationally. And we've been able to, yeah, leverage those contacts and, and build out a sort of a network across the region. So uh, right now, one of our projects, we're helping out workers in uh, a bunch of places in Southeast Asia. We are specifically and i cannot stress this enough we are not organizing them but we are providing some sort of industry support there with at least like knowledge about sort of negotiating contracts and helping out with legal frameworks especially for stuff in an australian context and so we are helping to sort of build this southeast asian network and also helping to sort of support them and for instance working with the cooperative federation here in australia to get in contact with their own sort of local cooperative networks and things and, and build out a wide sort of support network there internationally. And yeah, you know, that is because like the specific reason that we are not 
organizing these workers is because in a lot of these regions, um, it is very dangerous to be a syndicalist or a union organizer. And hence, we had to find ways that we could support them because we want to help the industry. We want to help the workers there, but also not put them in at risk or in harm's way. So this is the sort of thing that they said would help. And so that is what we're going to do our best to facilitate. See, um, I find that stuff fascinating. That is stuff where it sounds like you're definitely walking a line there, respecting potential domestic hazards that can come yeah. with, with so that identifying labour rights. Yeah, and that is why I have to be explicit. We are not organising these workers. They are not in a union. Yeah, I think this is stuff that I would say that the more mainstream institutional unions are, are, are very lacks to to explore i i think for your for the reasons that you've just mentioned but it seems like you're a couple of steps ahead with the idea of introducing that easy communicative infrastructure like discord and also looking at those delineations between organizing information sharing at the end of the day it's about benefiting workers that might be a potential exploitation right Mm -hmm. so it sounds like you're definitely doing a, an amount of navigation there. Well, yeah, well, it's it's because for us, like, we're essentially breaking ground here. We've never been in a labor organization like us in, in Australia, working to sort of organize game devs. You know, there's some programmers and stuff that have come from tech, who, you know, Professionals Australia, Peasmere is the one who covers them. Occasionally, I mean, earlier this year, we actually had the first right of entry by Professionals Australia into a Sydney game dev studio to talk to the workers there. Has that been something that has been an obstacle? Like you try to make contact with game development companies and they'll just say, no, fuck off? Uh, <laughs> oh, the, the specific incident was interesting because um, Studio had really, really hadn't really, um, yeah, interacted with unions before. So they... Uh, what's a union? Yeah, what's a union? <laughs> Why is this asshole saying that he can fucking enter my fucking workplace and talk to my workers? I mean, even his lawyers, like, they, they responded and CC'd in the organizer with their response about, like, his questions. Oh, did you get, like, a desist type of email, did you? Oh, no. The lawyers basically said, like, no, you got to let this guy in and, like, you know, oh. don't don't get in his way. Like, he, he knows what the rules are. Like, so, yeah, we, we, we just sort of, like, yeah, this professionals Australia organizer went in, spoke to the workers. And, yeah, there were a couple of, he was, you know, trying to get people, like, basically saying, like, there was this sort of issue and if you want we're gonna do this campaign if you want to sign up now go for it Mm. but yeah like he found a couple of professionals australia members there already they just hadn't informed professionals australia that they were working at the studio they kept their membership they were completely financial but a lot of the time like they were coming from an industry you know tech and they already knew their stuff and were working in games so um yeah, I can't quite remember how we jumped onto that particular topic, but yeah. Uh, it was me trying to tease out the, the innovative ways that uh, um, that you guys are getting established yeah. as a trade union. But yeah. one other thing that you've really sounded out to me there is that the, the partnership that you seem to have created there with the PESMA. Yeah. Now, I'm immediately thinking of a similar example within the fast food retail industry. Uh, with RAFU. RAFU the and the SDA, Rafu. where it is very much, um, I would say, a legitimate right. Yeah, um, yeah, because both organisations have very competing ethical bases upon how they they have union organise. Yeah, completely different sort of operations in terms of yeah how they how they navigate that different methods and 
yeah, different sort of relationships to the, the bodies that they interact with, the stakeholders, as I've learned in a, in a recent project management course. So um, how have you gotten past that on your end with Epesma? So with us, we've essentially developed this sort of clear relationship in that with Epesma, they are the registered organization. We act as a sort of funnel for them. We uh, interface with games workers and we're the ones who know about the sort of issues, know about the lay of the land. But Epesma PA has like the legal backing and, and the muscle. You know, we talk about building a better industry and holding buses to account. Congratulations, we have access to the tribunal system and stuff through Epesma and they are willing to go bat for us. We also act as a bit of triage. So if there's just small issues, like I need someone to look over my contract and like let me know whether this is all above board, we can do that, have a look and basically provide some on the ground advice like that. And yeah, uh, a lot of the reason why we're so innovative and whatnot, the way that we're looking to fill in the niches and stuff that, that we see is because, yeah, for us, I mean, we're... We're an activist organization, so there's not too much overhead if we got to change things quickly and launch a new campaign or something like that. Yeah. No one's job is riding on the line if, uh, you know, a campaign fails, so we can experiment a bit more. Okay. Well, I, I hope anyone from the SDA is kind of listening at this point just to say that um, that actually works and it's not too scary to work with um, with other political organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, just quietly, but not too quietly. Long live the rascally Rafu is, uh, is what I say. Yeah, yeah. So let's drive on to the home stretch there, Taya, where we can talk about our case study. Mm. Now, we've had to delay our podcast episode because of this. Yes. This release of this game that everyone suddenly is jumping up and down about mm. called Cyberpunk 2077. Mm. Their designers are CD Project. CD Project Red. But yeah, they're the same ones who did with The Witcher 3 yes. and The Witcher series. Yep, so they definitely got some cred. Oh, they have major cred. From The Witcher 3, that was the game of 2016, I believe. So that was their last like major release. They they obviously had like a couple of like DLC expansions and stuff, but as I understand it with this sort of project lifecycle with Cyberpunk 2077, they had some pre-production team working on things um, in the background while well, after The Witcher 3 was released and they were just working on the DLC. Mm. But yeah, so this has been a project that has been in the works for four years and We've seen uh, the recent release of it, and boy, has it been a wild ride. (laughs) Uh, I I don't think the ride is over yet, I imagine. Oh, gosh. I feel so sorry for the developers working in CD Projekt Red. Well, well, let let me give you my layperson's impressions. Go for it. So this has been something that's been in the works since the start of the 2010s, basically. At the start, there was, like, rumours that there was going to be this brand-new, fresh version of cyberpunk because Mm -hmm. it's a game that lends itself to rpg tabletop traditions and um, older computer games with the cyberpunk title so uh yeah this is based off of a property uh, made by mike pondsmith who is uh, actually one of the few african-american tabletop developers um in the sort of scene Um, did not know that yeah so he is fucking cool as shit if you ever get to like listen to him speak or anything like that like it is amazing i very he is the essence of cool i'd say but i digress well speaking about african-american game developers that might necessarily get the respect that they deserve um there's a there's a documentary that was on netflix recently and it's i think it's called is it called game over 
Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but by all means, speak to me about it. What was the what was the documentary um, about? Again, I'll, I'll put the link in postscript um, oh. to correct myself if I'm wrong, but it's a documentary that goes for six episodes, and one episode they dedicated to the creation of home consoles. Yep. Now, we commonly understand Atari mm-hmm. as being one of the pioneers mm-hmm. of that sort of stuff, but they actually um, borrowed a few ideas off some individual that decided to make a prototype, mm-hmm. and he just did it in his garage as a hobby. Yeah. Because this was in the 70s where you were suddenly seeing all those cabinet games yeah. being produced and arcade parlors being created. He's a guy just for a laugh thinking, what if I can just do the same thing at home? So true hit and miss DIY approach um, has the way that this documentary presented it. He knocked something up. But I think where he became unstuck is that he didn't put a patent on it because it was just a, a love project. Yeah. But as the documentary progresses, you can see that a lot of those ideas were taken on, particularly the idea of creating like a, a cartridge yeah, and yeah. a very streamlined version of a cartridge. You know how it's like cartridges standard form? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the guy that introduced that concept. Yeah, the standardization of it, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so all of that uh, was, I would say, co-opted in yeah. With the Ataris, the Nintendos. Yeah. And, and this guy got chucked in the dustbin of history. Yeah. and that's African-American a, dude. Yeah. That's a real shame. And and like all too common in tech, just because, you know, with marginalized developers and workers, like often they're not given the chance to actually sort of expand on those awesome ideas. It's always, oh, well, not always, but almost always like, you know, white guys who are just getting all the fucking seed capital to you know start up a co-working space and just buy up all the real estate in manhattan until it uh, explodes so getting back to cyberpunk so before they even finished the witcher they'd done like a teaser so there was uh, so this wasn't basically a case of finish the witcher and then start on cyberpunk it actually oh, was yeah, uh, yeah yeah overlap. so they had they had like a small pre-production team that was working a bit on it but then they pulled them onto the witcher to get them over the last line kind of thing you know it's the end of the project we got to get it out okay. um so we'll pull and reprioritize resources and all that wonderful stuff but yeah i remember like I was doing an internship at like a, a building developer for marketing. And I remember watching this trailer and like, you know, I got like the music got stuck in my head and I could remember and recall like the entire sequence in my head because I was so enamored with it. So this has had a huge marketing life, right? That was very passive though. So that was like, they released like one little teaser years ago. And then more earnestly recently started uh, within the last two years, I think like properly releasing out stuff and, and showcasing it like various conferences. Well, that was basically ways. their advertising campaign, wasn't it? It's like we're making it and everyone's just getting really excited about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was because it was the follow-up to The Witcher, right? Mm. And so, you know, that was the big game of 2016. And, you know, now we're going to do an exciting new thing. We're going to explore cyberpunk. So it's not, you know, Slavic fantasy anymore, medieval fantasy. It's, it's now the near future and, you know, it's going to have all these cool things. It's going to have this new aesthetic and everything and it's going to be edgy and yeah. And it's a known product because it is lending itself to previous versions of the RPG. And that's, that's a similar thing to what happened with the Witcher, right? So that was based off of a, a, a very popular sort of Polish fantasy series. Mm. Obviously it's become an international bestseller ever since the games and stuff like that. And, also the tv show that was made viable because of the games now i've just got to stress this though like the the person on the street would Mm -hmm. say that the the witcher netflix show is actually based on the computer game but that's incorrect no no, it's based on the book but 
that is The Witcher. Shall we talk more about Cyberpunk? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's does, too many tangents. <laughs> it is a very interesting story, but there is alignment there between The Witcher and Cyberpunk. So it's been more or less a game that's been a decade in the making. Yeah. Promises made between the developers and the employees where there, there was some very... Um, Prominent marketing saying that we're not going to crunch and all that correct. stuff. Correct, yeah, yeah. There was a whole bunch of articles out there saying we shall not crunch. We will do this in a very... We will be very ethical. We've got the resources from The Witcher 3. We can we can take the time and, and money and resources that we need to to make sure this project gets across the line without... And that was definitely around a time where coverage over crunch to me was really hitting its peak. And yeah. I think that was around the time when... Red Dead Redemption yep. was out, mm-hmm. and there was a whole bunch of crunch stories about that game. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. So uh, CD Projekt Red made big promises. We're not going to crunch our developers. We're going to make sure that we get things done as they should. And then the game, I guess, just wasn't coming together, probably to do with the fact that there was a new generation of consoles and stuff that were coming out. And mm. Yeah, the things may have needed to be upscaled to sort of fit with them or, or run smoothly on downscaling. Like, unfortunately, when you get to the end of a console generation, like that's when things really, really get messy because you're not just developing software that runs on sort of one device, right? So we were talking before about the standardization of Atari and things like that. And that's the big sort of selling point of consoles, right? It's you have one device, it's standardized across developers when they're developing for it, know exactly what they're gonna get. Yeah. As opposed to PC, where it's like, is this person on a is this person on a Mac? What's their graphics like? Are they using a mouse? Do they have joysticks? Do they have motion control? Who knows? With a console, it's it's standardized, you know what you're gonna get, you know what you're working with, you know what you're developing. Mm then when you have multiple generations that you're developing for. Particularly if this is a project that crosses a decade and we're, and we're seeing the, the evolution of console tech yeah. becoming increasingly fast. Yeah. So it's sounding to me that this has been a process that has been largely ad hoc. Ooh, they've had to throw in a bit of I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw that in quite yet. I'm imagining like, okay, even with like the best planning and things like that, things just sort of change and whatnot. So it might be ad hoc and whatnot, but I'm going to wait until I hear more from the developers about their Well, experience. for example, yeah. when did um, when did the idea of bringing Keanu Reeves as, as one of the oh, actors come in? That probably would have been... They probably had a short list of, of performers that they wanted to sort of bring in and sort of he's probably the one when, um, yeah, they, they sort of settled on. But so, do you think that happened in initial planning or is that something down the track? I where imagine so. Like they would have been like, we want to get a celebrity of some sort. So they, okay. so probably would have been in like the planning stages. They're like, okay, our main character is this and we want to get in someone famous. So, you know, you see this now in like the big AAA studios. They also want to bring in star power from outside of games. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you had Elliot Page appearing in a bunch of games or their likeness being used in a bunch of games. And yeah, like that is now sort of the thing that AAA studios, so they have like a bunch of tricks that they pull out and one of them is star power of of big sort of name actors. And Keanu Reeves was was obviously has heritage in the Matrix and with uh, the, what's it, uh, John Wick, the John Mm. Wick series. Mm. So yeah, but I also imagine they would have had like other sort of names on that list uh, and it would have largely just been uh, the same with any sort of Hollywood or film project, like who who's available, whose likeness can we use and who has a reasonable 
contract that we can sort of sign on with. Good that you clarified that because it did seem like quite late in the piece where they were suddenly saying, oh, he's Keanu. So there was only one delay. But before then, I believe that they were trying to crunch towards that deadline. So they were like, okay, our project isn't coming together as quick as we hoped. So we're going to do this. What was notable was that they delayed and did not discontinue crunch. In fact, they didn't even tell their developers that they were going to delay. A lot of them found out through the media covering Cyberpunk. Wow. Yeah. So in all likelihood, that decision was made. Marketing was immediately communicated with because you got to keep that hype train going and you can't you can't let it go. Like with AAA, if marketing dies, you know, your game dies. Hence why like a lot of people, like you're not going to get a proper assessment of your game, even if you're enjoying the first couple of hours until like you've probably had to sit down with it because in all likelihood, even the marketing then is like affecting your brain and you're just going to... Like, it's great. You're going to enjoy yourself, but like, is it going to be something that affects you or something you come back to later? Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's what it's one of the things it's designed around and why marketing has to be maintained for so for so long and has to be sort of kept at this fever pitch. That's one of the expectations of a game now. It's that returnability. Compare that to games in the 80s and 90s where you just release the game, the people play it and... That's yeah. it. Once you clock it, it doesn't matter. But yeah. these days, the value of the game is very much the replayability. So yeah. downloadable content and yeah, yeah. Downloadable getting those content, bugs yeah. out of the system and that sort of thing. Or even games as a service. So like, you know, multiplayer only stuff, um, Fortnite and whatnot, which is a juggernaut. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, what was notable about... So in game dev, crunch is expected. But when you are crunching for, let's say, more than like three months, two months, that is no longer a crunch. That is called a death march because not everyone at the start is going to be making it to the end. That's actually a thing to call it that? Yep. So you will, like, you know, most people still refer to it as crunch, but in the industry, it is a death march. Okay. Um, And it is just as harrowing as it sounds. This is why even with the, like, the release of the game and stuff that's come out, with all the bugs and everything, I still feel so sorry for the developers because those programmers are still going to be worked to the bone to fucking fix this shit ASAP. Well, it sounds even more horrific from what you're implying there that um, it is expected that people will just basically drop off because they can't physically meet yeah. what's needed at that yeah. point. Yeah, and this is this is the sort of thing where, like, honestly, if, if CD Projekt Red needed more sort of hours put into this project, they should have hired more people. They shouldn't have been asking the teams and stuff. They should have made that decision that like, look, either we're going to be crunching people or we're going to be onboarding them and we should be onboarding. We should be putting in those resources and the investors need to understand that this return has to make this or else we are doing it on the backs of our workers and we're going to be having this turnover and things like that. And you can't say there wasn't any forward planning because we were just discussing earlier on that this is something that was deliberately thought about and... There was some sort of scheduling and strategizing about yeah. how to um, conceive and deliver the game. The AAA, they they have you know proper like project management teams and things like that. This isn't like you know a small local studio that like maybe had a bit too much scope creep or like misplanned things, misestimated because they're you know young and 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 dumb. You know, it's sometimes those mistakes can happen. But this is with a proper AAA studio. 
they would have had proper uh, employees there with the experience and, and the knowledge to know that like these sorts of features, they take this sort of time. They would have had prototypes for various things of gameplay and, and yeah. basically timelines that they would have been working to. Well, the resources that to be actual provide due diligence to the whole process, yeah, yeah. Which, in, which should also include the, the labor complement of yeah. what it takes to create the game. Yeah, so there was a shortcoming somewhere, and whether that was executives making unrealistic decisions or, you know, what are they called, uh, creative directors or, or the writing teams or the leads on and, and various things just underestimating for how long something is going to take or how much effort is going to be needed. Like, crunch is never... I would argue crunch is never the fault of the developers. It's never the fault of the person at the coalface. It's always the person at the top who's made a mistake and it's up to the poor developer to fucking make up for it. There was this delay, this crunch, this mistake was made and yeah, it became a death march and now we're seeing the outcome of it with how the game has, has come out in its current state. And yeah, it's not been, not been particularly smooth is how I would describe it. There was one particular review that um, that caught my eye from GameSpot, mm. and that was 7 out of 10. Now, the, the fair whack of the, the usual suspects that review the game, it's been nines, high nines. Here's this one out of the box with GameSpot, who uh, rated it 7 out of 10. Yeah. Now, adding to the politics of it all is that the reviewer is female. Mm-hmm. So this particular journalist who provided the review has now suddenly experienced an amount of backlash yep, from players yep. about uh, the criteria about her review, but mm-hmm. she marked it down, and I think in a very legitimate way. Uh, to me, it sounds like it was on two grounds. One is that gamers is buggy as fuck. Yep. Two, some of the elements of the game panders in a very artificial way to political issues. So. Yep. There's some consternation about how transgender people are depicted in the game. Yep. Also, the the messy marriage between cyberpunk convention and leftist pop cultural thought. Yes. Um, uh, so all of that is a bit of a messy soup. And yeah. I, I think that the journalist has done a very brave thing to actually mark the game down for yeah. such things. I mean, these are the things I'd be looking out for being yeah, a, yeah. a rabid lefty playing this game. Yeah, no, me too. Like I, so I'm, I'm also a fan of the tabletop RPG and I was super excited that they were going to have, so Keanu's character is Johnny Silverhand. He's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I was, I was excited uh, for the prospect of, you know, a mainstream game approaching, uh, like politics in this sort of way like the last time I, I saw it in a way I quite liked I don't know if you played it but uh, Wolfenstein the New Order or, or the seek, the second one right so they had like a straight up like southern communist like preacher who was just like <laughs> shooting Nazis drinking hard and like saying y'all so like it's for the specific instance here with the journalist right that backlash is a product of that marketing hype People already make up their minds before they even play the product. And even if it's like a mediocre game, like, you know, this has an effect on the consumer. With this marketing, they've been conditioned to love this thing before they even put their hands on it. Too big to fail? Too big to fail. And that's that's part of how they get you. There were also articles and, and talk um, amongst journos about the fact that review copies came out really late. So they a lot of these journos were having to write reviews, like, you know, only... F- five, four days before 
you know, the game came out or before embargo lifted, which was a couple of days before the game was released. Was there also a lot of issue about the limited content that was released that could be reviewed on? No, I think they gave out, they were reporting that there was issues with like bugs and stuff. So even, even worse than what's currently being encountered. Um, So they had the day, day zero patch where like you can pre-download the game and then they also released a sort of patch that would go in before you could properly play it kind of thing. So you can get that out of the way. It's almost like you're purchasing the chassis of the car and and then here's the engine that you need to purchase about a day later. Uh, Okay. The good news is, is that uh, with day one patches and stuff, they're generally free. But uh, I imagine that uh, at some point we may see a studio or a company try and do that. And uh, I imagine that the consumer backlash is going to be even worse then. Um, But yeah, like it is essentially, so these reviewers were sort of playing around with this game that was uh, in an even sort of even worse state than than we can see now. And they only had a limited amount of time to sort of properly play it, unless they themselves were like, you know, pulling 16 hour days to to play through this game. And some of them, some journos do that. Um, Um, I imagine this is one of those games where you're probably going to need to average out 40 to 60 hours to really get a full immersive experience out of this game. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to do that over four days. Congratulations. Have a go, mate. Yeah, get your sleeping bag, put it yeah. next to your desk. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, why why even put it next to your desk? You can sleep in your sleep... You can be in your sleeping bag and play the game. There you go. We'll set it up for you. Ah, so, you know, go. You, go, you you play until your eyes bleed, go to sleep, wake up, get back right to it, mate. <laughs> you know, there's there's this sort of thing. And so so good journalists, when they're reviewing, keep, a, keep an eye to the fact that this sort of honeymoon period with any sort of game where it's like, oh, this is great, this is new, I love the novelty of it. But you also got to factor in how you're going to feel in a in a couple more days when you play it. Are you going to come back to it when you turn off the game? Do you still think about it? Does do you remember the music or any of the characters or anything? Like, does it even leave an imprint in that way? So these are sort of questions that reviewers ask, and obviously, it's difficult to sort of properly gauge a game when you're given such a sort of limited scope in which to actually get your hands on it, and and with something this big, right? When there's so many other avenues and areas to explore, characters to meet, like you're going to be riding that honeymoon for quite a while. So I'm not surprised that there are a bunch of reviewers who are giving it nines. Uh, I know that no one's given it a 10, I think, or I'd be surprised if there was anyone who's giving it full marks considering all the bugs and stuff. But I'd say that like what we're seeing with the experiences of and like, you know, the, the reviews and stuff that are coming out now is that, yeah, this is, you know, a huge game but it definitely needs a lot more polish and a seven would probably be closer or seven out of 10 kind of thing. With that, like, obviously you get the, dare I say the gamer TMs, the ones who are far too invested in their identity as, as a consumer. What do they call them? Sorry. Uh, well, the joke is gamer TM as in gamer trademark, the ones who, you know, capital G gamers, the ones who are all about quote-unquote gaming lifestyle and you know generally okay. you've got a you've got i'm a, glad there's a term for that uh it's 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 a it's a jokey term i i but yeah if anyone describes themselves as a hardcore gamer you, you are allowed to raise your eyebrows a bit and be a bit uh, concerned but people put a lot of their identity into these games and into these products and want to yeah like they identify with them well i'm saying tiktok reels of people cosplaying and yeah and they're doing their first playthrough yeah and you've got really getting into it yeah they're they're doing streams of it and things like that right and yeah of course they're like or someone gave you criticism or gave me criticism of course like there's going to be a sort of knee-jerk reaction of like hmm, like 
what's this about? And, you know, I, I think that's fairly standard for most people. Like not, no one likes to sort of be told that they've got some things they need to work on, right? And yeah, this is the same thing here. They've identified themselves with this product and, you know, end up sort of having this reaction to it. And then you also have the current of sort of Gamergate where the the right was successfully able to sort of enter into these spaces and say, this reaction that you're getting, your your identity that you feel is being attacked, it's because of these SJWs, these women and my, minorities and of various sorts um, coming into the, the space. Way yeah, things are and the way... Uh, yeah. pop culture concept should be presented bingo um how dare they how dare they yeah there's a huge confluence of all these factors and this leads to situations like this where a reviewer who is doing their job and i would say doing their job correctly is rightly warning you that there are these problems with this product but you've already invested not just like money you haven't just prepaid the game you, you pre-bought the game and stuff you've you know you've been following along with the marketing you've been fucking tweeting you know all the 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 videos and trailers you know you've maybe you've made art like fan art of like the characters and things like this has become a part of you hmm. and now you have to reckon with the fact that like someone is telling you that there are some concerns you should have as a consumer that investment from designer and consumer alike with certain products, um, I think is is worth noting there. I think particularly if we're if we're going to try to, as a counterpoint, try to paint a complete political picture over how games are created, mm. and of course where we're driving to, and I think it might be a good final point to to finish up here with Taya is the idea that. All these things always involve a labour effort to get up and running. Not exactly the most glamorous aspect of it, but it's an essential one. Mm. And I think the more yeah. that this stuff can be noted and covered, I think that can possibly, at least for the consumers at least, uh, allow them to take a couple of steps back and think, well, this is not exactly something that's just been birthed and gestated out of electronics boutique yeah <laughs> this is me showing my age about how one buys their games but yeah. there is a story about how this stuff is produced yeah yeah and that's exactly it like um if you're a consumer if you care about these games if you love the medium and i think that there's a lot to love i want you to as a consumer as a fellow human being as a fellow worker i'm imagining a lot of you support developers resist things like developers being forced into crunch and things like that and these games these instances these disappointments that you may or may not feel and this sort of attacks on the medium that you love will be less less often less so and the medium will grow because of it and will become a better place to work and we'll probably get better games and that would be the note that i'd want to leave on support game developers support game worker unionization in the death march yeah fuck the death march get off the death march yeah, it's been nice to have a chat with you about this stuff, Taya. Um, Thank you for I, having me on. I feel like there's some some issues that we could potentially cross over into the future. Sure. Um, but for now, stay safe, take it easy, enjoy the game if you choose to purchase it or play uh, it. I will. I will consider my. I'll consider my options. Yeah, as am I. Cheers, Taya. Catch you later.